if you would stand with me and I want us to turn to a place, it'll be up on your screen. But to begin the morning, uh, I wanna just read from the scriptures a passage that is very important to us, especially as we frame up what God has us doing here this morning. Revelation chapter seven, John the apostle writes, verse nine, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. Now note this, they were from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. The church said, amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his, with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, your word is good. And I pray that as we have read this, that it would prepare our hearts for the conversation and the instruction we will get from the scriptures and also from one another and from our guests that are here with us this morning. We pray you'd bless it. Bless our time in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat and uh, we're gonna have a little bit of a different morning this morning that I've been really anticipating and believing God for for a while. But I did wanna draw your attention back to the text that we read, uh, specifically verse nine, when it talks about this scene that the apostle John sees around the throne. And uh, I emphasize verse nine because around that throne, as he looked, he saw before him a great multitude unable to be counted and one of the notable fa uh, facets of that great multitude is did you notice they were from every nation? In other words, God is at work on every continent. Can we say amen to that? Amen. God is working in China and Asia and Africa. He's working in places you don't even know. When you get before the throne, you're gonna say, God, you have been busy. You've been doing stuff. Even while I was asleep, you have been moving. From every, from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne of God. And so this is the throne of God is a place of diversity and racial unity, a beautiful place where we see the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus prayed, you can read it in John chapter 17, Father, for my church, for the church, all who will believe, may they be one as you and I, Father, are one. I mean, you don't get any more tight than the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit saying, we're all one. May my church be that as well. May they be as one as we are. And so this morning, we believe God is asking us as a church community to take a step forward 
in unity in every aspect, that we would see in the church that we would be an outpost of heaven, that we would look more like the throne than the American church, which tends to divide by denomination and racial class and worship preference. But we're saying, oh God, bring to us on the earth a little taste, a little slice of heaven. How many want a little slice of heaven on earth? So this happened um, a couple years ago for me, and this is will frame up our conversation this morning. Um, during the time when there was lots of resurfacing tension between the police in our country and the black community with a rise in, in shootings and everyone had an opinion, the alt-left, the alt-right, and you know, you're getting all this weird information on the news and you didn't know what was up and what was down and you knew there was hurt and we, we sought to stand in solidarity. And uh, Becky Johnson, where is she? Shout out to Becky Johnson. She, uh, she, she made me aware that there was this social revolutionary in Cary who uh, had committed to sitting on the corner of Chatham and Academy during the hot time of the year to neither eat nor go home to sleep with his beautiful wife and be with his family. He was gonna sit on that corner until 500 people agreed to stand with him in unity and solidarity together. And uh, that was the beginning of what is now known as the Cary Unity Walk and Fun Run, started by our brother, Jimmy Clemens, who we've uh, had come share with us before. And uh, it's now two years running. Sounds like it's exceeded expectations. We expect this to be a constant growing momentum. And uh, in just getting to know Jimmy and the work that God has called him to do, writing in, in local publications, he began to share with me about something revolutionary that's been happening in the town of Cary called these barbershop rap sessions, uh, where the police department, the Cary PD, and even other police departments were starting to get together at the local barbershop and talk about the issues that everyone was scared to talk about, didn't know how to talk about. And then I met our brother, True Pettigrew, this year in the fall, as I, actually last year in the fall, as I was walking the Cary Unity Walk, I was able to meet with him and, uh, and then I, I was able to attend my very first barbershop rap session um, in January. Thoroughly enjoyed it, went this month as well and just have been so moved of heart. But that particular morning at the barbershop uh, had an effect on me that I think is life-altering. And, and I'll share exactly how that happened. Um, True, who you'll meet, uh, he uh, tabled the subject that morning. It was in January, so it wasn't even Black History Month. He tabled the subject of the importance of black history. And uh, because it's not a, a church meeting necessarily, though True be a spirit-filled man, he's just talking community, talking society and, and the importance of black history. And there was several uh, community leaders that were in the barbershop that day. There were several police officers and, and uh, local uh, business people and, and leaders in school districts and principals and community leaders and such. And, and, and we kind of went down the line of how each different facet of the city and the town of Cary was gonna engage black history. And then it came to the church. And it was myself and another pastor, the only ones really in the barbershop that day representing the church. And the question got asked to me, so, so what is Emmaus, what is your church, Brian, gonna do to acknowledge Black History Month? And to, quite, to be quite honest, because I'm a pastor, I can sort of talk my way out of stuff. I don't know if it's a little bit of politician in me. I can say something and not really say anything. I cannot answer a question, you know? And uh, I really didn't have an answer. Because the answer is, we're not planning on doing anything. And, and at that point, I felt the spirit of God begin to chase in my heart. And I say, well, why not? And, and so it began this conversation I've been having with the elders and with God and myself. And I began to do some reading and some thinking and some praying. And, and just to say, God, we need some help as a community 
to engage this conversation. And so I have asked a, several of our guests to come to join a panel to help us have this conversation. So would you give a big amaze welcome to our guests as they come to the stage? Come on down. And uh, before I take a seat and let True take over, um, I just wanted to have each one of you uh, tell everyone your name and some of the community work that you are currently involved in uh, in, in our city. And, and what, what, what are the things that God has you doing right now? So we'll start with the most uh, handsome Jimmy Clemens. <laughs> um. Just the, the thir year three of the Carry Unity Walk is coming up, and um, I have a running slash fitness ministry, and a few other things. That's it. And you're looking good. Fit is all get out. <laughs> right. go, I go, don't go. trust a personal trainer that don't look the part. Go, go, go. <laughs> I know. I feel like I need to join this fitness ministry go, go, go. over here. Go, go, go. Maybe get my six pack by the summer. <laughs> um, my name is Catherine Christian. I am a Police officer with the town of Cary Police Department. Um, I don't know. You asked me a question that you've already thrown me for a loop. She's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. She is. Um, I don't know. I think I enjoy teaching. And right now, that just feels what's the most that I'm called to do at this moment. Yeah, so, that's awesome. Kind and of you're keeping us safe, so we thank you for that. Yes, thank you. Thank, thank you. you for your support. Thank you. Well, good morning. My name is Tony Goblin. I am the chief of police for the town of Cary. And um, I have been here for, uh, I think, a lifetime. I uh, actually was born and raised in Wake County and went to school at NC State. And while I was a senior at NC State, uh, yeah, yesterday wasn't so good for us, right? Way to win some fans there. <laughs> while I was a senior at NC State, I did an internship at the Cary Police Department. And I knew immediately that that's where I needed to be. And as soon as I graduated, I came to Cary PD as an employee and uh, now we're um, a little over 28 years later and uh, have had the opportunity to just see some amazing work being done. Uh, really, and I am blessed to have been able to serve almost three decades in this wow. community. Wow. And uh, it, is, it has truly been a That's blessing. Amazing. So we'll talk more about why yeah. that is here in a little bit. Thank you for your service, Chief. We appreciate it. I have to follow this guy, right? So, uh, mic check. Is this thing on? You guys hear me okay? All right. Okay, good, good. My name is True Pettigrew. I am very excited to be here. A resident of Cary will be 10 years November of this year. My wife and I moved here from Boston, and uh, we took a tough L recently, but, you know, I digress. Um, <laughs> and uh, I started off my relationship with the Cary PD for very selfish reasons. I uh, have a young son, Austin, who's five years old. Um, at the time when he had just turned two, it was August of 2014, August 9th to be specific, something very life-changing occurred, and it caused me to go down to the Cary PD, kick in the doors of the Cary PD and demand some justice. And uh, they, they answered the call. Uh, Chief Godwin said, anything you want, Mr. Pettigrew, we'll, we'll do it for you. So just write your list of demands and we'll accommodate. And um, the story and then gets you woke bigger up. and bigger and bigger every time we hear and, this story. Uh, and, and here we stand. <laughs> just, just a reminder, we're in church. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take a step to the right. I, I, you're right. It is trade. It said art center, but I guess we are kind of. <laughs> all right. I'll. I'll. Um, you guys pray for me. <laughs> So we're glad to have all of you here, and then I'm going to ask our panelists to take a seat. And true, I'm going to give you the driver's seat. This is what you do. So yes, sir. I guess I get to be one of the panelists this morning. You are okay. a panelist today. Thank you. All right, take it away, sir. Thank you. And I, I want to start off by saying thank you to all of you. Thank you, Pastor Brian. Thank you to all of you for allowing us, welcoming us into your home today to have this conversation and this dialogue. Today we're going to talk about race and race relations. And that topic makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. So because it makes people uncomfortable, we don't talk about it. And so it is a very courageous conversation to have, but a very necessary conversation to have. And I'm encouraged that you all as a congregation are having this conversation because I believe that if the church is not leading the conversation, about the healing of our nation and the healing of our land, then it's not gonna happen. It's not, the government's not gonna do it. Um, much as I love these men and women in uniform, our law enforcement is not gonna do it. Uh, the school system is not gonna do it. We can't look to any of our government institutions. It's the church's responsibility to lead the transformation of our country and of our nation. So I applaud each and every one of you for allowing us to come in here and have this conversation today. So round of applause for you all. Thank you. And so we're gonna go into the conversation. The way that this is going to work, I will ask the panelists some questions. Um, and when we have, uh, and I'll keep a time check, and then I wanna open the floor for you all to ask questions as well. And I encourage you to ask the questions, whatever is on your heart, and whatever is on your mind, ask that question. That is why we are here today. That is why these men and women have dedicated their time to be here today. Because if we don't want anyone to walk away with questions in their mind and thoughts, that we have the opportunity to provide some clarity, where we have the opportunity to provide some clarity. So don't feel, there is no judgment. This, will, this is a no judgment zone session and discussion today. So we want to encourage everyone to be open, be honest, and you may not necessarily agree with every perspective that you hear, and that's okay, right? Because it's through our diverse perspectives, it's through the diversity that you just talked about this morning, that innovation and creativity and progress is made, it's through all of those diverse perspectives. And so we want this to be a co-creation of thoughts, ideas, and solutions where we all come together to collaborate on how we can best move forward because no single one of us has all the answers. It is through us all coming together, sharing our hearts and our minds with one another as to how we're gonna best move forward. So please, ask the questions when the time comes up to, uh, when we open the floor for questions. So I will start off with my question. When you talked about the racial tension that exists in society, in this country, particularly as it comes to law enforcement and the black community. So, Chief Godwin, I'll start with you. When, when I, re I referenced earlier August 9th of 2014, I don't know how many of you are aware of exactly what happened that day, but that was the day of the Michael Brown incident in Ferguson, right? And I remember it so clearly because, like I said, it was a transformational moment in my life. 
When that happened in Ferguson, the law enforcement community, and we'll, we'll talk specifically to Kerry, because that's what you have control over. Right. Were you ever concerned that that could happen in Kerry? Um, so, and, and I assume when you say concerned that that could happen, you mean the aftermath of the, the shooting? Uh, yes, thank you. The, yeah. the aftermath of the, the riots and the uproar and the, the racial discord to such a high degree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it certainly was a concern. Um, obviously, we were, um, we were very concerned about what we saw going on. Uh, and, and, it, and it was an interesting time for us because about probably six months before that, we had done a little bit of soul searching inside the Cary Police Department. And we had realized that we had done a pretty good job of connecting um, our largest uh, minority in Cary is Asian, and we had done a fairly good job of connecting in the Asian community, uh, particularly Asian Indian, which is the largest part of that minority. Um, and then behind that is uh, Hispanic, uh, and we had done some outreach in the Hispanic community as well. But we realized that our third uh, largest minority in Cary was the African American population, and we, we come to recognize that we hadn't done a great job of reaching out specifically in trying to connect in the African-American community. And so we had started trying to figure out how will we do that. And we had come up with a plan that we would um, uh, invite uh, faith-based leaders, uh, pastors from the predominantly African-American congregations in Cary to sit down with us and have a conversation about, you know, what are people's concerns, what are their perceptions, what are their fears, and in hopes to be able to address um, some, some things that were going on around the country. Um, and before we actually sat that first group down, Ferguson happened, right? So that was a really interesting time that, you know, we had started working on it and putting together the plan to get together before Ferguson, and then Ferguson happened, which really put the, put the point on the exclamation that we really have to do this because that absolutely can happen here, right? Um, and, and we have a responsibility to make sure that all of our citizens understand who we are and know who we are and what our values are um, because they deserve that. All of y'all deserve that, right? We're not doing it to prevent Ferguson. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. But then when Ferguson happened, we certainly, um, that certainly kind of ramped up the, the understanding of need to make sure that we, we sat that group down and had a conversation. And really that's where our journey in what has turned into uh, the last four years, that's where it began, was with that first, um, that first thought process of seating this group of faith-based leaders because we understood that we need the faith community to help us if we're going to have an impact in that area. Mm -hmm. right? We can't do it by ourselves. No, we can't do it as individuals. We have to have the faith-based community to, to help us because the faith-based community is so powerful and impactful and can really change hearts and, and minds. So, yeah, so yeah, yeah we, we, we were absolutely concerned. Okay, thank you for, for that. Um, Sergeant Christian, is that right? Cat's fine, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Cat, were you a part of those early meetings with the the um, initiative that Chief Godwin is talking about, about um, what was the name of that program, Chief? 
Building bridges. Building bridges. Were you a part of the Building Bridges Initiative? I came in a little bit after. Um, okay. They were doing more of the setup part, and at the time I was, I think, back on patrol, if I remember correctly, maybe. Or maybe I was in a school, I don't remember, but the initial part, I wasn't a part of that part. Okay. You're a part of it now? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, we talked earlier about how uncomfortable it is for people to talk about race, yeah. right? Is it uncomfortable for you? So you have a very unique position. You, um, you're black, are you, you black? Today, <laughs> today, <laughs> for now. The way the light is hitting you is what. <laughs> Every now and again, I feel a little different inside, but today, today I'm black. <laughs> so you're black. Yes. And you're a police officer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So how does that dynamic play out for you? Was, is it, un well, I'll start with the first question. Is, was it and or is it uncomfortable for you to have conversations about race? Uh, yeah. So I actually met a member from Hawaii and I grew up in the Caribbean, I grew up in St. Croix. So our discussions about race were very different where I grew up. Um, and then moving here is really probably the first time that I felt um, really a lot of racism per se. I came shortly after, I moved here in October 2001, a month after 9-11. So, we already had a different set of racial tensions at that time mm -hmm. um, on top of your terroristic thoughts and that type of stuff. But then becoming a police officer in 2007, we were still riding the high a little bit from 9-11, from where those officers had sacrificed so much, which made things a little bit still good for us in 2007. But well, the profession all, was viewed as profession heroic. profession was still really viewed as well. So race wasn't so much a discussion in our agency at that time. Um, but then when we started having these discussions, it's an interesting place for me um, in a lot of ways. Carrie has tried very hard to recruit minorities for our department, but it's just, there's something about municipal agencies that many black females don't come to join. You have them in the sheriff's office and more in um, other parts of the state, like Durham has a larger percentage of uh, black females, but Carrie's just a little bit different in terms of having a, a large minority base of police officers. And um, it's not for lack of effort, it's just, we, we just don't, they don't get them to apply. Black females don't apply. So at the time when I joined Carrie, there was another biracial female in me. There was nobody else, um, nobody that answered the phones, nobody that worked in records, nobody on the 911, not even people that cleaned the building. It was just me and her. And then she left and it was just me for a couple of years before we were started to get in many more minority females. On patrol now, we have three. Um, black females. I think they feel black today too. <laughs> but, you know, not to speak for them, however, I do think that they feel black. Um, but to then ask me to where I was already, I've never let race stand in my way or never let it be something that I relied on or a crutch or something that I made allowed me to have excuses. So, I've always just operated on my work ethic or who I'm as a person first. Mm -hmm. But to now have this where it's, it's glaring and here you are, that you almost have to talk about it. It was, it was having me step out of a comfort zone where now I have no choice but to discuss my experiences and what have you. And when you're sitting next to your chief and telling him, well, sometimes things aren't always as equal for me as you think they are, it's a hard place to be in. Right. You know? Yeah, so I can imagine it's a tough conversation. Well, you just have to decide that this is my experience and I try to be as respectful as possible. 
I don't always do the best job, <laughs> which Chief can tell you, but I try, you know. But, um, you know, it, I think if we're going to have a conversation, we have to have an honest conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's not always pretty. Yeah. And it's not always, um, you know, it's not always nice hearing for everybody. Yes, yes. Can, uh, if I can make a point about that, because that's really, really important, and, and the value of an honest conversation, mm -hmm. talking about what you really think. And so I, when I told you we put the Building Bridges group together, when we had our first meeting, um, we brought all these pastors together. And I'll be perfectly honest, as we went into it, we were going to ask, uh, and we did ask, what was the, uh, you know, kind of what is the perception of the Cary Police Department in your congregation uh, and in the black community at large, as much as you can speak for that. <clears throat> and we, we honestly expected that the answer was going to be, yeah, it's pretty good. It's okay, right? Because what I can tell you after almost three decades of being a Cary Police officer is when our citizens aren't happy about something, they tell us. Right? <laughs> I get it a lot. I get emails and phone calls and letters in the mail and all kinds of things. People are really good about letting you know when they're unhappy, right? And we hadn't heard that from our black community. So honestly, our perception was we're going to go in this conversation and they're going to say, yeah, everything's pretty good, right? Um, that's not what we got. Because when we asked that question on that first night, what I heard was the perception is, is that the police are here to protect and serve the white community and police the black community. Think about that. Protect and serve the white community and police the black community. Now that came out of left field. That was the sucker punch I didn't see coming. And it really affected me. And it really drove home to me just how much work we had to do because right. nothing could be further from the truth, but we needed to develop a relationship so we could talk about what that truth was, right? Because you gotta have a relationship if you're gonna change people's perceptions. And that really, um, that really drove that point home to me that you don't even know what the issue is. Right. And so that was a, that was a great, as, as painful as that was, that was a great thing that happened to the eight or nine police officers that were in the room that day because it opened our eyes to just how much we had to do and needed to do. Yeah. So, Thanks for sharing that, Chief. Yeah. So, Jimmy, I'll, I'll ask this to you, building off what Chief just mentioned, the importance of having that open and candid conversation, right? You know, how important that is because so much was accomplished after having some open and candid dialogue about learning things you never even knew and those different perspectives were really causing this distance and this divide to continue to grow quite candidly because conversations were being had over here, conversations were being had over here and the perceptions, not necessarily the reality, were continuing to grow among all stakeholders because those conversations weren't being had with each other. Why, and I'll ask you this, Jimmy, why do you think it's so uncomfortable for people to talk about race. I, think I mean, I know it's, it's hard for you to speak for everyone, so I'll just, in your experience, because I know you talk about race, yep. in your experience, what do you think is driving the discomfort of people when they talk, when you talk to them about race? You go up to somebody and say, hey, I want to talk to you about, you know, black people and white people. <laughs> 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 right, right. Um, I, I, I think we have to just call it what it is, and it's the spirit of fear. 
It is the spirit of fear. Um, you know, we fear what we don't understand. Mm-hmm. That's just the way human beings are. We fear what we don't. The one thing man desires to control more than anything else in his life is his understanding. You know, so, um, you know, I, when it comes to race, how you enter it will determine how you come out of it, one of these conversations. So we have to look at it from a natural eye or a spiritual eye. If you look at it from the natural eye, you'll see it as racism. But racism does not exist. It's not real. It's good and evil. That's just what it is. Uh, when it boils down to it, we call it racism because we can tie something to it. And that part of man's understanding that he wants, that's what gives him the satisfaction. Because I can reach out and say, somebody that wears your skin has hurt somebody that wears my skin. Mm-hmm. So then that way I can lay blame somewhere. But for, to call it racism is almost, it's kind of like, you know, you, you, you take drug dealers. I'm not talking about Pookie and Ray Ray on the corner selling drugs in the neighborhood. <laughs> I'm talking about the drug companies. A lot of these drugs that they put out deals with the symptoms and not the problem. Mm-hmm. So when we say racism, we're dealing with the symptoms. We're not dealing with the problem. The problem is good and evil. Right. And the church, we hold the power to change it all, to do this, mm-hmm. to do. Amen, preach. So to, to do this, this, this is where it has to start, but it can't, it can't just sit here. We have to go outside. I mean, you gotta think about it. There's a Hispanic community that feels the same way we do. Mm-hmm. There's a Middle Eastern community that feels the same way we do. They're called terrorists. They're called this. They're called that. So it's, we oftentimes focus on a black and white issue, but race, race is not real. Good and evil is very real. You don't see the word racism in the Holy Bible, mm-hmm. but you see good and evil from Genesis to Revelation. So what we have to do is we have to approach it and say, okay, this is not um, a black and white issue. It is a good and evil issue. And that right there, at least for me, keeps me from taking so much so personal. Right. You know, right. You, you sit and you do what you do now in that barbershop, and those conversations can get thick at times. Uh-huh. You're a human, and you're a black man, and you hear things that kind of makes your blood boil a little bit, mm-hmm. but you understand you can't take it personal because that's why we're there, to deal with these issues. Yeah. So, you know, when we approach race, you have to approach and say it's about good and evil because it's a heart issue, and you cannot... A heart issue can only be experienced. It can't be. If I'm a, a, a jealous man, you don't know that until you hug my wife and I take your head off. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, but, but, but that's a heart issue. A I'm heart a, issue can Stop hugging her, by the way. Yeah. yeah. You can hug her. Yeah, you can. A heart issue is not something you can see. It's something you experience. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what it is with this, this anger. No one single person is born with hatred in their heart. That's a learned behavior, mm-hmm. which eventually becomes a heart issue. You can't know that until somebody says or does something and you have the experience of their heart. You know, right. one day a man called my wife a nigger lover at a store in front of a large group of people. So as he was driving by, I wouldn't have known that just looking at him, but then I experienced his heart issue. Right. So then I had a choice to... <laughs> Or not to. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I chose not to. But then good, I have to explain. Good, good, good. I wanted to. <laughs> but then I have to reel down and I have to go sit and talk to my wife who's never had that experience before. Right. And say, honey, don't take that personal. Here's why. And she's crying and she's upset. She doesn't understand. And I say, honey, that's a heart issue. That, that was put in him somewhere. You know, it, it's kind of like this. Uh... I was so upset one day at a restaurant because the, 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 the waitress, the way she approached our table was just so ghetto. I was like, 
I'm in here. This is a very great experience. Going to a restaurant's a big deal for me. So when we go, and she was approaching the table, and you could just tell by her body language that something was off. And I leaned over towards my wife. I said, here we go. Here we go. Bad service. So she comes up. Can I take a drink? Or blah, blah, blah. Walks away. And I'm just raging mad. I'm like, I can't believe this. This is my time. She goes, and my wife leaned across, and she put her hands on my hands. She goes, how do you know she wasn't beaten before she got here? How do you know she wasn't raped as a child? How do you know she won't leave here and go see her child in a cancer ward? You don't know what she's been through. Mm -hmm. That humbled me and it changed my outlook on people forever because, and so now when I approach people and I see people and they say things like that guy that day, instead of me going, I now have to step back and go, what happened yeah, right. in his life? Something happened somewhere in his life to where somebody poisoned his heart. And it's a hard issue. Yeah. So how you enter it is going to determine how you come out of it. No, thank That's you. That's yeah. so real, man. That's so That's real. It, it, it is a hard issue. It is right? a hard issue. It's a hard issue. Yeah. It's interesting, even as I listen to you speak, where racism comes from, and just to think about the notion of racism as it is defined, we are assigning meaning to sure. the color of skin. We are assigning meaning to the pigmentation or the level of the degree of melanin in someone's skin, right? They're, they're, oh, they're smarter, they're stronger, they're fast. Like to, based on the color of their skin, we're assigning meaning to that. Just think about that for a second. That someone is bigger, better, stronger, faster. For all of my um, Oscar Goldman fans, anybody remember that? I'm just the only, okay. Anybody? Six million dollar man, nobody? Yeah. All right, all right. <laughs> that we're assigning meaning to that based on simply the color of skin, right? And when you process that, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't even sound rational. So to your point, it is, it is a heart issue. Yeah. It's a heart matter. Um, so Pastor, I'll, I'll ask you this, and I'm gonna kinda call you out, you know, a little bit. Thank you. Uh, you know, if, if it's okay as a, uh, a leader of the church, a church, right? Yeah. The church. So. If I remember from um, Bible school, what is it, Cat? You know, Second Chronicles seven fourteen, something like that. Yes. It said, "If um, my people, my people, who call themselves by my name, mm -hmm. so I, I would imagine as Christians, men and women of God, right? My people who call themselves by my name would humble themselves and pray, seek my face, seek my face, turn away from your wicked ways. I will hear you from heaven, mm -hmm. forgive your sins, and then." I will heal your land. Now, our land is in need of some healing. Yeah. Right? And God has made it very clear that those that are responsible and have the power to provide that healing are those of us that call ourselves by his name. He gave us a simple, what is it, four-step process. Right? Humble yourselves, pray, seek my face, turn away from your wicked ways. Four steps! Come on, man. <laughs> Come on. We got the answer. Yes. What's, yes. what's, so what, what's wrong with us? <laughs> <laughs> what's the holdup? What's, what's the church doing? We relying on it. They, this guy ain't going to fix it. <laughs> what's, what's the church doing about this? What is the church doing? So I'll talk a little bit about my life experience. And uh, I am half Mexican. So I grew up with a white father and a Hispanic mother. So uh, bicultural, and I think I had a unique experience because I grew up in the wilds of Southern California, which is a cultural melding pot. Um, 
Uh, I have an affinity for the Hispanic community because of my grandparents, and I don't speak Spanish, unfortunately. Um, and so I, I remember it was a, just a little while ago, we were unpacking some things in the garage, and my wife, uh, she looked at a picture of my, I think it was my kindergarten picture, my kindergarten class, and she said, wow, you really grew up in a racially diverse way. There was Indian and Mexican and black and Asian. We were all there. Every tribe and tongue had gathered in my kindergarten there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so my, my, my youth, uh, I would have called myself colorblind. Um, and I know that's offensive to some people, but uh, you know, I, I played in the sandbox with everybody. Right. So I didn't learn to be racist. I didn't learn. My best friend was a black guy named Clinton Banks. And my dad never knew that he was black until he met him. And I'd been friends with him for years. And my dad was shocked. He said, you never told me he was black. I thought, dad, why would I tell you that? This <laughs> right. is my friend Clinton. He happens to be a black man or, you know, young man, but, but his, the color of his skin didn't matter. It was him. It was, that was my friend Clinton. And so then becoming a follower of Jesus, um, I got saved into a white church, predominantly Caucasian. I, I don't, maybe there were two black guys in our church um, in Southern Oregon. So I moved from the wilds of Southern California to very white Oregon, um, <laughs> Southern Oregon. Right. A, a, lot of, a lot of farmers and hippies and stuff like that, counterculture peeps. Uh, so I was, I was a fish out of water, but that's where I learned ministry. Mm. I learned how to pastor in a white context I learned how to live socially in a multiracial, multicultural, Mexican, African, everybody. My first crush was a, an African girl named Kiki. So I didn't know, you know? I was like, so then I, then don't be, I started. Don't be, don't, don't be stalking Kiki on Facebook. <laughs> so I am, I actually feel like I'm being, uh, reborn as a pastor. Mm, mm. Um, I, I know how to do this as a human being, but I have not learned how to pastor when race is on the table. Wow. Because, you know, there's musical differences in the church. There's uh, preaching style differences. There's government. I'm reading right now Timothy Keller's great book called Generous Justice. Yeah. And he said, you know, one of the things that you don't understand as a church leader is if you're white and you grew up in a white church context, not even just all white people, but white thought, white leadership thought. There's a, there's a thought that's white. I, apparently, I didn't even know about it because it was just, I just, that's how I learned church. Right. And so if you're trying to do a multiracial leadership, if you, if you get an Asian man and a black man and you know, someone from the Middle East and you're all sharing the table of leadership, I could tend to just put on them my white church training, which it's not right or wrong, but I'm governing from the place I've learned. So what I'm really re being born as a pastor in my own context is to learn how to lead in the church in a multicultural, multiracial way. To ask the questions that in your church tradition, in the black church and mm -hmm. in, in the Asian church and the Hispanic church, what, what's meaningful to you? How did you guys make decisions? What was worship? How did you hold a prayer meeting? And so, I mean, that barbershop rap session is just the beginning of the reformation of Brian Fowler. So hey, I, amen. Amen. That's all I got to say. No, I'm, that's, that's, I'm, that's why you're here and you're, that's why y'all are here. Just helping me, helping me good, be better. Good answer. Good answer, brother. I appreciate that. Uh, you talked about your first experience in, in the barbershop rap session. Um, I don't know, just by show of hands, has, has anyone in here ever 
had the black barbershop experience. Anyone in here ever been to a black barbershop? All right. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Please, yeah, I, I in invite and encourage you all to come in and participate in the barbershop rap session at Headliners first Saturday of the month. Uh, what time is it? Eight? Winter it's winter. schedule. Winter 10 a.m.? No, we start the spring hours. Oh, we're starting that too? Yeah, so in March. So it's uh, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Uh, it is the... It's entertaining, to say the least, right? Uh, but we have some really rich dialogue and conversation, and it, the, the culture of the barbershop is important to understand that because it's no holds barred. Like, if you come in the barbershop, you another man or woman in the barbershop. Your title is kind of out the window, right? <laughs> it's like none of, none of that matters. So you talked about your first experience. Chief, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what was your first experience like in the barbershop rap session? Were you excited? Were you nervous? Was there anxiety? What was your expectation? And then what was the experience? So I came to the barbershop because of that very first Building Bridges meeting with the pastors. And in that meeting, another one of the things that was said uh, was that when you want to reach the black community, you do that in two places. You get the churched at church, and you get the unchurched at the barbershop. <laughs> and I said, Although well, I, I go to church too, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, we need to go to the barbershop. And True uh, made that happen for us. True had been doing these rap sessions uh, in the barbershop for, at that point, I think about three or four years. And he talked to the owner of the shop and, and, and said, you know, I want to I bring... Um, police officers into the shop to have a conversation. <laughs> that was, that and he was said, what? <laughs> no, I'm sorry, what? I thought you said police officers. <laughs> and uh, so because of, of his trust in True, and, and I'll tell you this, the owner of the barbershop, um, he did not trust police officers. That's, that's where he was in life. Um, that was, and, and there's no judgment when I say that, you know, that was uh, based on his experiences in his life and growing up um, outside of Philadelphia. Um, he had experiences that led him to, to have trust issues with, with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and, he, and he had that. Uh, he had that even here in Cary. And, but because of his trust in True, he allowed that to happen. Mm -hmm. And so we went on our first day. And so your question was, you know, how did I feel? You know, yeah, I was, I well, was really what, nervous. What, was, what did you expect? You had never been, and then, yeah, what was the experience? Yeah, so, um, so I, I didn't know what to expect, um, particularly since I had been set up with the unchurched or in the barbershop. Um, <laughs> but I, I, had, I had come to know that, that there, were, there, were, um, there weren't limits as far as what would be said, that if people thought it and people felt it, they would say it. They're not going to hold back. Um, they're going to be honest and open. And as I told you before, that's what we needed. We had to have open and honest dialogue. So no matter how bad that hurts, no matter how um, negative that is about law enforcement and about us, we need to have that conversation because it's only through that conversation that we're going to be able to move forward and, and, and fix the problems that we have. And so I was really nervous going in. And it was a really good session. And we heard some really tough things, just like the first uh, Bridges meeting. Um, so it wasn't easy, uh, but it was, it, was, 
it was productive and it was useful and it helped us learn and grow. Um, you know, and it's one of those things that all of, the, all of these experiences help us. It, it helps us as much as uh, it helps others understand us. It helps us understand others. And one of the things that came up uh, and we had conversation about was, um, was the talk, right? And, and I don't know how many of you know what the talk is, but the talk is basically a conversation that in black families um, is, is had with children, particularly as they reach the age where they go out on their own, particularly driving, um, 16 years old or so. Um, and the, the, the conversation is how do you survive an encounter with the police, hmm. right? And that is a fairly widespread in the black community, that conversation is. And I've got a 16-year-old, and it's never occurred to me to have that conversation, right? I've never thought about needing to have that conversation. But that's the reality in part of our community, that that the, the perception of the need to have that conversation exists. And so my point of that is, I learned that. And now that I know that, now that I know that exists, I can do something about that. I can change how I approach a young black person when I make a traffic stop, knowing that they likely have had this conversation. The way I approach that can make the, a world of difference in how that encounter goes and how they feel about that encounter. And so we talk about that in our police department. We, and we educate our officers about the concept of the talk. And, and I think that it's through those conversations and that education that we receive that we're able to do a better job. So, you know, that, that's the value in what we do at the barbershop. And it has been, it, it's, I can't, I, I can't overstate how transformative um, that experience has been because it has absolutely changed me as a police professional, but beyond that, it's changed me as a man. Mm. And, and I am a better person because of the time spent having those conversations in the barbershop. Amen. Amen. Chief, there are two things that I heard. That there was a lot of really good stuff in what you just shared. Two things stand out to me in what I just heard. One was you said that initial conversation, it, it stung. It, it hurt a little, yeah. right? And, but now, on the other side of that, you talk about how much of a better person you are, a much uh, better law professional, I mean, law enforcement professional you are. So I, I, I take that out to share with all of you that that initial conversation, whatever fear may exist, confusion may exist about how to go about having the conversation about race, it's going to sting and hurt initially if you, 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 you've been shying away from it. But I liken that, and I've said this before, Tony, you've heard me say this, is that I think about when I first took my son to get shots as, a, as, a, as an infant, right? You know, you go to the doctor's office, anybody have kids, right? You go to the doctor's office and they, they, they get you in cahoots. This is what they do. It's like, all right, just hold him down, distract him, and you know, and I'm gonna give him this little shot. So I'm like, hey, buddy, blah, 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 the doctor's over there. And he's like, wow! And right, that look that they give you, like, yo, like, you were in on it, like, come on. You know what I mean? And so I felt horrible, right? I felt bad, but I knew that that, that was going to be a brief moment of discomfort. But that was necessary for the healing to take place, right? 
You know what I mean? And so I just want to share that with what I just heard from Tony is that that brief moment of discomfort may sting in that moment, but the healing is on the other side, right? Yeah. The other thing that I heard you say was when you make a traffic stop. Now, Kat, what was the last time he actually <laughs> made a traffic stop? That's what I want here. It's like when I'm out there making traffic stops. Come on, TG. So <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, you think he out there making traffic yeah. stops? <laughs> look at that suit. Does he look like that? <laughs> Truth be told, there's a rumor going around that he made some a few months ago. Come on. On US One at that. What? Yes, sir. Is that, is that it? Thank you. Thank no, no, before, before we clap, I want to see the dash cam footage. Is there footage of this? I'm just saying there's a rumor going around, <laughs> but I believe it to be true. Okay, well, yeah. go ahead, man. You actually yeah. out there, huh? Still got it after all these years. <laughs> exactly. Now, Kat, let me ask you, there are the perceptions. We've heard a lot of thoughts, honest thoughts shared in, in the barbershop. Right. Um, some painful. Right. As, yeah. as, as Chief just shared. And when it comes up that a black officer, right, is viewed as a sellout mm -hmm. or an, an Uncle Tom. And these are things that we've heard. I don't know if they, they call the females an Uncle Tom, though. Do uh, they call you Uncle Tom? No, I hadn't heard that one. That just goes for, for the guys. That's a man thing. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. um, now, I don't know if you guys understand this from a culture standpoint, but to call a black person an Uncle Tom is, <laughs> you hear that mm -hmm. reaction, right? It's, it's pretty bad, yeah. right? There, that is a lot of, there's a lot of offense taken um, when you're referred to as, as an Uncle Tom um, and, and a sellout. So what do you say, what, what are your thoughts to share with this congregation and audience about those that view black police officers as sellouts or Uncle Toms or Aunt Tamina's, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about what I would be called in, you know, uh, in terms of the female reference of Uncle Tom. I'll have to look that up, get some research coming out. Because <laughs> now I'm curious, right? Um, but have you experienced that? Oh, absolutely, and it's, it's interesting because at the end of the day, I'm still a black woman, you know, who loves black men, who loves all men, however, you know, who can relate to and understand black men. Um, and it's a hard place to be in because as a black person, you 100% understand the issues that are part of the black community. Mm -hmm. And then as a police officer, I have a very different lens when I look at situations that are um, involve police officers, black, white, whatever, um, with black people. It's so, it's so, at times I'm very torn. People closest to me, um, I've lost friends closest to me. Uh, one of the, the, the men that I'm dating, he's not had good experiences with law enforcement. So you talk about an, a hard conversation to have at times where he, he is trying to find a way to reconcile both of these for himself. Mm. So at times I have to be very careful in how I push things because he's just not always there yet. But it's a difficult place to be in, in terms of, you know, when you have knowledge of something, I think it, it makes things a lot easier to kind of, to put into perspective versus when you're responding emotionally to things. But it doesn't take away the emotion for me as a black woman when I see situations that I just am like, oh, this hurts as a woman, this hurts as a black woman, this hurts as a person. And then 
As a police officer, I understand why they did what they did. Mm -hmm. And I understand why it's legally justified, even though it doesn't feel morally right. Mm -hmm. you know? Police work is not pretty at times. Um, it can be very ugly and hurtful at times. And I think sometimes that context is missing um, when we look at things. But for many of us, it doesn't mean it hurts any less. I think the last thing that any of us want to do is to hurt anybody else. Um, right. And I think when you see the other side, which unfortunately we've seen a time or two, you've seen officers that are completely devastated by having to hurt somebody. And when I say devastated, they, have, they are torn to pieces and no longer, I mean, just, they're gutted. And that's hard to see because they've done what they're supposed to do, what they're trained to do, but then there's that man in that human side that is just crushed. Yeah. You know, yeah. Completely crushed. And, and it's interesting, my perception of law enforcement, the profession, mm -hmm. black, white, or other, you know, Hispanic, if you wore that uniform, I had a certain perception right. of law enforcement based on my life experiences that was not positive. Right. Having established some familiarity with the Cary PD and surrounding agencies and departments, thanks to you, Tony, um, I now realize how wrong I was, but it took having conversations right. and building a relationship. Now, that being said, when I travel and I go certain places, I'm still leery. Of course. Right? I'm, I'm still leery. And, but because I have a relationship here, I mean, I was doing like 88 down Cary Parkway just the other day. It was like, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but I am not fearful of my life or my son's life in the way I was five years ago in Cary, Apex, Marsville, Holly Springs, right? And so, and I want to ask you this. I'm going to let you make your statement, Kat. But then, Jimmy, think about this. Is that the same? I know you have a great relationship with Carrie PD. Do you share that same dynamic that when you travel, when you go outside of the four walls of Carrie, do you still have that same sense of concern when it comes to law enforcement? But I'm gonna let Kat make her comment. Sorry, I had to, in the barbershop, if you don't raise your hand and make it be known, she is not going to call on you. So if you come, make sure you wave it high. You, know, you don't miss a hand, do you? I haven't missed a hand in, We're seven, in church. seven years. We are in church, true. We're in church. Um, it's funny you say that, though, because we had that conversation at my roll call this morning with my guys. We talked about the different policing. So here we are in Cary, where, you know, we, we've had seven officers that have been shot in the last five days. I saw that. All right? Yeah. So we were talking about that this morning in roll call, and one of the things that we talked about in roll call was exactly that, so fine, we don't police that way here in Cary, but we can't forget that there's other parts of this nation that still very much police in a different way than us, you know? Even as officers, we've experienced that, just trying to have another jurisdiction help us with the case that mm -hmm. we were working in terms of just, this happened in your city, we need you to investigate it. Now y'all take the initial report. And there's nothing really we can do. So that's on our level, officer to officer. So we understand that these things happen in other nations or other parts of the country of the nation and what have you. It doesn't make it any easier for us because what one officer does in California is going to mess us up right here in Cary, North Carolina. Yeah. yeah. No. yeah. Jimmy, are you like me in that regard? <clears throat> when you travel and go somewhere else, do you still feel those same kind of concerns when you, if the pole, if the blue lights get behind you? You know, I don't because I kind of have, I have a mindset and I have had, like Tony said, the talk with my son, even at five years old, we had that conversation about 
life. But when, you know, if daddy or mommy gets pulled over, even with him at five years old, I had to explain him, here's what you do. Here's what you do not do. And my wife and I have had the conversations and I think we have kind of become so programmed into how to do that right to where we don't worry about it. I worry more about people. Mm. You know what I mean? You right. know, at, at, at the gym where I work, I sit in the steam room and sauna and locker room and I talk to people. People on the edge, man. They're on the edge and people are angry and they're frustrated, whether it be political, whether it be family issues, whether it be whatever. People are just on edge. And I don't think any of us can possibly fathom if these two were the only ones on stage and they sat up here and they talked for 12 straight hours about what it's like to be a police officer, we still would not even be scratching the surface. Their job is beyond anything we could understand. Um, and she's right. It's ugly for a lot of reasons. And just from what I understand, it's ugly a lot of times because people receive them with a certain idea and a certain mindset of what's going to happen. And they are the bad guys when they show up, even though they're there to help. Um, I worry, I'm, I'm more concerned about people um, and just being in society. Uh, I've had far worse, many more bad experiences with people than the bad. Than you, than you have with oh, law oh, yeah. enforcement. I've never, I, I've never been called, uh, my wife has never been called, we've never been ridiculed by anybody wearing a badge. Um, I've been pulled over for things that I didn't think that I did necessarily. I didn't run that red light. I did not run it. Well, yes, you did. And it was handled professionally. I did what I was supposed to do, kept me, and it was fine. Right. But still yet, I understand when I walk in a restaurant, people look and they turn their heads and they shake their heads in disgust when they look at my family. But I mean, the, I'm more concerned about people than the badge. And so this is because you are in an interracial marriage. Yes, deal gotcha. with it a lot. People just are not comfortable with that even today in 2018. Nope. Got you. Um, Pastor, if it's okay with you, I want to open up the floor for some questions. If yeah, that's so if right. you have a question, if you would, uh, James is going to be holding the mic down here and you just, uh, I guess he'll be right here and then you just come up to the front and ask your question. So um, if, you're, if you're bold enough to ask a question of anyone on stage, we have one uh, right up, James right up is going to be here with a microphone. And you can direct it to any of the panelists or open, or it can be open to all. Sure. Uh, Officer Chief, is it Jimmy? Yes. Uh, all y'all. Um, I'll start, this is, a, this is a light, easy question just to start things out. Are there bumper stickers that you would absolutely not put on your vehicles? Or is there a bumper sticker that you would absolutely put on your vehicle? No Duke. No state. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. No. no, no, no. Go ahead, Chief. I resent that, Jimmy. How interesting. Well, you know, as True said, I don't stop a lot of cars. <laughs> so maybe I'm not the uh, expert sitting up on the stage right now, but Sergeant Christian stops a lot of cars. So do you, so, do you have a perspective on that? Um, I don't really look at the bumper sticker. I, I find them amusing, but for my personal car, yep. I don't have a blue line sticker on my personal car. Um, and for those of you who don't know the blue line sticker, you can only <clears throat> buy it for yourself as a police officer, or you can only buy it for your family members. You'd like as a citizen, you couldn't walk in and buy a blue line sticker. Um, but I don't have one. Um, I don't give them to my children to, for their vehicles or anything along those lines either, because the fact of the matter is not everybody likes police. To me, it makes an easy target. Yeah. Um, it's identifying, and if anything, even not for harm, but if anything, they can believe that there's a weapon in there for them to take for other ills. 
So I just choose not to identify myself that way. Mm -hmm. I, I would never put a political sticker on my car, yeah. one way or the other, because there's so much anger and tension tied to the political toxic situation in this country that people are losing lives, cars are being vandalized because of it. And uh, you know we rely too much on government to make things right, but this is where it starts yeah. right here. So. Could I, could I push the envelope a little bit more and ask about a BLM sticker? What? Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter. Matter. Would you put a Black Lives Matter sticker on your no. car? No. Hmm. Would you like to know why? Yes. Um, because it, it, in, in Black Lives Matter, there has to be balance. You know, when she initially started that, it had all of the right reasons and the right foundation behind it, but it got so out of control and so many people got on the bandwagon for all the wrong reasons it kind of it would shed a different light. You know, it, 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 with black on black violence or when a man is not taking care of his son or whatever, we can't just say black lives matter when they're only killed by white hands. Black lives matter if you're not taking care and raising your children. That little black life matters. Black lives matter when uh, a black man or woman takes another black life. We can't just go and shut down highways because uh, a, an officer has killed a black man. I'm not justifying the saying it's okay, but that little black life needs his, his, his dad. This little black life needs his father. So we can't just get so caught up and it has just become such a mess because so many of the wrong people got involved and just took away the real meaning of it. Her intentions were fantastic, but just like everything else, man touches it and it goes to you know where. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Thank I guess you. It's like I can say hell in church, right? Yeah. 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 It's in the Bible. Say that. It's in the Bible. Next question. Uh, so mine's for everybody. Um, so Carrie continues to be called the safest city, like in the country, or in the or the best place to raise a family, um, which is awesome. Uh, so it would seem. May, easier maybe to have this conversation and, or get this kind of momentum going in a city like Cary. So my question is, is this momentum, is this conversation between law enforcement, pastors and just citizens, is this being carried into places like Durham or Southeast Raleigh? Where in Cary, where it's the safest, the best place to raise family, these kind of questions or these kinds of uh, issues might be a little bit under the surface, whereas in Durham or Southeast Raleigh, they're right in your face. And so is it, is it easier, is, am I right in thinking it's easier to, to get this going here? And is there communication and is there conversations happening between you guys here and in Durham or other places? Because like the church, we can lead by example, but if we're not, if we're not, the capital C, the big church, to talking to different other churches and other demographics, um, like the, that's where like real change, like a, that will be magnified, will happen. So is that happening in other places in Cary? And I want to do this. I'm looking at the um, line of questions, and this is awesome um, that you guys are willing to be disengaged. So when the questions are for any and everyone, I just want to designate one person to respond so that we can kind of keep the questions going. All right. So um, do you want to take that? Absolutely. Thank uh, you. Great question. Uh, and, and so <clears throat> to your premise that it was easier to start and carry, uh, I will challenge you on that and say it's not easy to do anywhere. 
Um, <clears throat> I will agree that maybe doesn't have as many challenges as it does, as it would in Durham, um, but but it absolutely um, was not easy. And what we saw in the barbershop over a period of time was we saw we started hearing, uh, okay, I'm all right with you guys, y'all are okay, but my radar goes back up as soon as I leave the carry city limits. And so we started thinking, you know, it doesn't have to be that way because I know a lot of police officers, particularly around us, and I know who they are. And so we actually started bringing other police departments into our barbershop. I started with Apex. As a matter of fact, I called the chief up in Apex and I said, hey, I'm gonna pick you up on Saturday at 7.30. I'm not asking if you wanna go, you have to go because you have to see yeah. what's going on. Yeah. And the Apex chief, you know, to his credit came and said, okay, I, if you say so, I, I'm there. And so I picked him up and brought him. And since then, Apex has done three barbershop rap sessions in Apex. Same story, um, Fuquay, Verena, Garner. Can you grab that? No, I got it. Okay. I'm good. Uh, Fuquay, Garner, uh, Raleigh uh, has had rap sessions as well, um, which is kind of getting to your point of those bigger cities and, and bigger issues. Um, we haven't done it in Durham yet. Um, but, but we, so I have, I have a, a, a rule that anybody that wants to talk about the race issue, the Cary Police Department will talk about it anywhere, anytime with anybody. And so we've been to North Carolina Central, nowhere close to Cary. We've been to East Raleigh, you know, we've been to NC State. We will go if people want to have that conversation because that's what's going to fix it. But, <clears throat> thank you. But beyond that, we've even started trying to spread it beyond that because we recognize this has to really, has to be fruitful and mul multiply, right? And, and we started with the North Carolina Association Chiefs of Police. I got True to come and present at our annual conference, which exposed him um, to about 200 police chiefs throughout North Carolina. And as a result of that, he's done, he's done uh, uh, sessions and trainings in places all around the state, from, from, up, from the mountains, honestly, from the mountains to the coast, um, all over the state. And then this past October, we actually uh, were selected to do a presentation at the International Association Chiefs of Police Conference in Philadelphia. Wow. And that is the largest police uh, conference in the world, and there's wow. about 17,000 people that come to that. And we did a workshop um, there in front of police chiefs from all over the world. And the really cool thing, and I'll end with this because we've got a long line, but the really cool thing about that is, if you remember, what brought truth through our door originally was the unrest in Ferguson, Missouri. And when we did that workshop in Philadelphia, the police chief from Ferguson, Missouri was in the room. His, Del, his name is Del Rich Moss. And afterwards, he came up to True and said, I love what you've got going on. I need you to bring this to Ferguson. Woo! Can you think about that? That's awesome. Full circle. Yeah. So it's really cool. So yeah, we're doing everything we can to spread it to, to other areas. That's good. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Chief. Next question. Cool. Uh, is it cool if I ask Cat or Officer Cat? Sure. Cat's awesome. fine. <laughs> so um, yeah, growing up, I was sort of like Brian in the sense that I feel like I was like a bit racially blind in a mm -hmm. sense, where I just kind of went to school and hung out, and my friends were my friends, and I was friends with a lot of people in different. Um, racial groups. Mm -hmm. um, my question is kind of like how um, uh, how the chief was saying when you pull somebody over, you have an opportunity to kind of come at it in a, in a different light. Right. 
and sort of approach it differently? How can we who don't have that, like, that sort of venue of um, being an authority in the city, obviously we are in Christ, authority in the city, but just living day to day, how can we change the approach or have a more effective approach at um, loving people and honoring people and bringing like racial unity? Wow. It's a lot. <laughs> Figure it out, cat. Well, <laughs> he started with traffic stops, so I was like, I got this. You know? How can we influence, or like, what, is, what are some ways that we can influence as, as just people who, who work and have friends and just do life? How can we be an influence in, in the world, I guess? I think, you know, it really is very, excuse me, as simple as just having a conversation. I mean, it really is that simple. So many people tend to stay in their own circle, meaning that they really associate with people who are like them, whether it's economically or whether it's racially, whatever the case is. But I would challenge you to open your circle. Yeah. It's really what, it's as simple as that. Now. Let me add a little caveat. Not everybody's at the same place as, as you are or I am or what have you. So you've got to tread lightly and kind of re- read the room. You know, mm. you don't walk up to a black woman on the street and ask to touch her hair. That is a no. Okay? Let's, I'm just like, that rule is off limits. Okay? I am in your circle. However, don't ask. I'm having a good hair day. Please don't ask to touch my hair. You know? But the truth of the matter is, it's just expanding your circle. Yeah, it really is almost good. that simple as expanding your circle. That's great. Thank you. Who we have next? Hello. So this question is for anybody. Um, and I'm sorry, um, let us know who you are. Introduce oh, yourselves. Yeah. I'm Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hi. That's and nice. she's I'm single. Just, <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Wow. Just saying. Thanks, Brian. Um, <laughs> so um, I, yeah, this question is for anybody. Um, and I'm going to try and keep it short because I know there's a long line here. But um, I appreciated Brian's perspective about growing up and not really, almost kind of being colorblind. I felt like growing up I didn't even really see color. And a similar issue I know today is gender. Um, also not something I saw. I didn't really attribute any of my successes or failures to being a woman. Um, just kind of to my own who I am, my character, things I need to work on, whatever it is. Um, But, so, I guess my question is, um, how do you know um, when, and as Jimmy was saying, it's an issue of race, um, or when it's actually just, when when do you bring up race as the issue, or when do you bring, kind of leave it out? Because sometimes I see, similar with, like he was referring to with Black Lives Matter, and similar with the newer feminist movement, um, and like kind of pushing men down to bring women up, um, how do you know when it's actually not a race issue and when it's appropriate to maybe even leave that out of the conversation? Great question, great question. Jimmy, I'll throw that one to you if you, if you don't mind. Um, you, you okay with that one? Sure. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, like, you know, understanding that it could or could not be harsh, you just don't know where people are. So you have to be careful in how you approach. And to be honest with you, the best way to approach, even if your intentions are to deal with or find out if it is or is not a racial issue, you first have to just love people where they are. You have to love them where they are. No matter how crazy they seem, you love them where they are because truth be told, people are not even going to mess with you if they don't trust you. 
People are not going to expose their hearts to you if they don't trust you because we, when we're vulnerable, we get very scared as people. And so a lot of people are carrying a lot of issues. We all are. Um, we're all a, a little jacked up in some ways. So, um, you know, we have to really approach people with a lot of grace and a lot of mercy. And you have to love them where they are and just let them get to know you as a person and let them see who you are and where your heart is. And you'd be surprised at how open people are just to sit and one day ask you a question and talk to you about certain things. But first, get to know them. Love them where they are, because that's what Jesus does for us. He loves us right where we are, and we're a mess. Mm -hmm. So, that's, Thanks, Jimmy. Yep. Appreciate that. Um, my name's Adam. I'm not single. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think my, my question is a little bit similar to Kat's, and so if it's, if it's similar, let me know. But um, I think one of the things that I, I hear over a lot is that... Um, the, one of the greatest offenses is silence um, when we don't uh, speak out about injustices that we see. Um, but I also know that the conversation, as we've talked about, has become so politicized um, that I think for me, figuring out where to not be silent, like I know sometimes I see the issues that I feel like I shouldn't be silent about. I know not to put it on Facebook because that's not where <laughs> those conversations happen. Or I don't feel like I should anyway, but um, I don't... the. In, in just everyday life, how do we not be silent, especially when we see injustice? And I think Jimmy talked about when it's evil, when we see just evil happening. How do we not be silent in a way that is, um, uh, that, um, is what we should be doing, that is odd, stepping into the conversation, but also not mm -hmm. stepping into something that is not going to get us anywhere, that's just gonna end up being a fight. Because that's, that's, I think, what it feels like a lot of times that I feel overwhelmed about is that I feel like I'm just gonna end up in a fight with somebody when I'm stepping into those conversations. Yeah, so. now that's a great question. And um, Dr. King talked about our silence being complicit yes. when things are, when we, when we know that evil is taking place, we know that ill and wrongdoings are taking place, that silence right. can be equated to being complicit in that evil. So, Pastor Brian, if you don't mind, I'll kind of throw that one to you based on your recent experience of having a similar type of revelation that yeah. while I wasn't doing or saying anything, um, how have you reconciled that? Uh, I think for me, one of the issues that I have found to be the most helpful, and I think it goes along with what Jimmy was saying, is that if I'm going to have the conversation about racial tension, I want to talk to black people. Um, and so I need to widen my circle, like Kat said. Um, and, and ask them about their experiences versus just make assumptions. I was having a conversation with somebody who was not black, who said something about black people in the South. And I thought, well, how many black friends do you have? And how many conversations have you had? Because the conversations I'm having don't sound anything like that. Hmm. Um, but they were essentially saying, it's not a problem. They like being segregated. They like being away from us. They, they like doing something uh, different than we do. And, and that's the way they like it. That's the way we like it. And we're all at peace with this thing. Don't come here with your West Coast ideas uh, <laughs> and try to, to stir the pot. So I, I think for me, like um, determining uh, whether or not I should step in, I want to talk to the people who could be potentially offended. So if it's right. an issue of um, women's rights, I want to get together a, a rather diverse group of women Right. And ask them the question and just listen. Be, learn to be a listener and find groups of people that may be from different socioeconomics even. Yeah. Um, I'm, now, I'm having a reformation, so this is new to me. Mm -hmm. But as I, as I think through this subject myself, I think um, being willing to ask questions of people who represent that people group. 
um, to say, is this an issue? And, and at, to what degree is this an issue? Um, so, I mean, I guess, I don't know if that even touches. No, um, I think that, I think you did a good job of, I, I learned something from that. It reminds me, um, Tony and I think we were together. I heard a gentleman after a session, 62 year old white male who acknowledged publicly, he said, wow, I'm a 62 year old white male. And everything that I've ever learned, known or believed about black people, I learned from white people. <laughs> Put it in perspective, yeah, right? Right. Yeah. So thank you for that response. And I think we have about, well, you're our timer, so you just give me the, send the Sandman up here, bro. This, this would be the last one. Okay. And just to say um, before, Megan, um, uh, there, you, you guys are available afterwards. So um, after communion and stuff, uh, this, this quadrant of, of community leaders will be out uh, in the lobby. So if you didn't get to ask your question, they'll be available to talk more. Right. So, um, so I think we've got maybe one or two more. Is that okay? Two, okay, so two more questions. And we'll be out in the lobby. If anyone has any questions, we'll be out in the lobby. So we'll take these two questions. Um, well, three, I'm sorry. We'll take these three questions. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We'll take these next three questions. Uh, hi, I'm Megan. Um, one of you mentioned something about when you actually experience black life or a police life, you have a better understanding of it. And we, all of us struggle with that. If you haven't lived that life, it's very hard to understand it. Um, and I think right now in our community and in our culture, this ra especially race and police is a huge conversation that everybody's having. Um, and it's almost that the uniform is a, is a whole nother skin tone now. And it's, yep. and um, yeah. so just as someone who is not black and is not a police officer, I don't what? have experience in either of those worlds, but those are the conversations that are constantly happening. How can we have those conversations in a healthy way? Um, clearly getting to know people in those areas more and hearing of their understanding. But when those conversations just come left and right, like how do we talk about those things from where we're standing? Um, that's a great question. I want to throw that one to you, Tony, because we've laughed about this a number of times where, and I don't want to steal your thunder if you're going to use this, but um, where he talked about there, would be a, there was a time when he wouldn't describe. He's like, you know the guy in the burgundy shirt with the kind of cool shoes and the brightling watch? He was like, the black guy? <laughs> where there was a time he wouldn't, he would be uncomfortable saying the black guy, right? So. I want to throw that one out to you. How do we have these conversations? How do people that aren't police or aren't black have these conversations in a non-threatening way? Is that? Yeah. Um, so I'll even take it beyond that. And True and I experienced this at, he and I both went to the um, exhibit at the Museum of Natural History in Raleigh this summer. And it was about, it was an exhibit about different races and how we are so much more alike than we are different. And that's what the exhibit was, was about the fact that there's not that big a difference in the races, right? And when you really break it down. Um, and we were talking to somebody who worked at the museum and we were talking about something and she was trying to refer to somebody that was standing across the room as somebody we needed to talk to. And, we, and I said, you know, where, where is she? That's who I want to talk to. And she said, right over there, uh, right, she's uh, red pants, bending over. Uh, right. I was like, the black woman? Yeah, 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 yeah the, black, the black woman. It's like, she was uncomfortable even using that as a descriptor. That's how uncomfortable race is. And she was at 
the race exhibit. <laughs> the race exhibit, right? And even in that, in that uh, venue, it was uncomfortable, right? But I get it because I've been there, right? Mm -hmm. I've been there. Um, and so, you know, I, I wish I had some revelation, some, you know, big moment that I could tell you is the answer. To me, the answer is have the conversation. Just talk about it. Talk about it. The more people you talk about it with, and it will be uncomfortable, but the more comfortable it becomes. Come to the barbershop and see how we talk yes. about it in the barbershop. Because that really helps. I've learned so much from being in that venue and hearing people talk about it. Um, I learn better how to talk about it by watching others that are so good at it. People like True, who are so good at having the conversation. You learn from those folks. So look for those opportunities. And you already know where one is. Yeah. The first Saturday of every month, guaranteed. Um, but come and see that. But, but don't be afraid to have the conversation as often as you can. Yeah. Um, and with as many different people as you can. Uh, because just with, with, that, with that familiarity, you get better at having the conversation. Yeah. Okay. So, so I think we're... Oh, we've got to do, there's a kid, man, come on. Okay. Hey, our worship guy's saying it's fine, so. All right. He, he's he's the you, powerhouse, Tony. so if he says it's fine. My question is for Kat. What uh, is the hardest thing about being a police officer? Oh, my uh, goodness. Great question. That Thank you for good. your question. Good job. It was a great question. Um, geez. So I've been almost almost 14 years as a police officer and I've seen myself grow and changes a, a lot. I think probably the thing that I missed the most about my life before a police officer, there's two things. One, um, sometimes it's really easy just to turn off my feelings and I miss not being able to connect all the time. The second thing is I miss having my freedom of speech. Mm. I miss it a lot. Wow. Mm. Um, those are probably the two things that I miss the most and I look forward to in 12 years, 11 months, <laughs> 17 days. About the same as you. I'm getting, but yeah, it's probably, probably the two things. It, it makes relationships hard at times, um, makes connecting to people hard at times, but um, those are, there's so many other things that I truly enjoy like, I, I work with a great group of men and women, and that makes it so much more tolerable, all the things that we experience when you work with some good people. You encounter some really good people. This, to me, is phenomenal. If you had asked me four years ago that I'd be sitting here talking to you guys and not stuttering and crying and public speaking, oh, no. I mean, if you ever asked to be here now, I, I don't think I've ever enjoyed anything more. I enjoy oh, it more and more good. every time. That's so cool. thank you for your question. Thank you. And thank you for your being so gracious with your time. Thank you for having us. I think we're, we've run out of time, right? He skipped he a little girl. He let the oh, oh, I'm sorry. Just My one man. more. And we got the same. We'll, we'll, we'll yeah. let Randy do his thing. And then, uh, Brian, I don't know how you want to transition this out. If you want to we'll figure it out. Straight to communion. <laughs> so this actually is a question probably for um, Jimmy and, and Brian. So Brian knows I, I do a lot of study on contemplation contemplative groups, you know, they talk a lot about how we, we grow up with boxes 
-hmm. and you have to slowly peel those things off. And again, it talks about, like, like I've studied a lot about the Trinity and that, that interconnected relationship. Um, I really do believe, you know, you start to heal by taking some of those things off that you grew with. And mm -hmm. I'd just like to hear thoughts on, I, I heard your, very much your conversation about it's a heart issue. But what's the healing that needs to happen within the black community um, as far as what do, you, what do you see that needs to be healed? How do we get into that space to heal that? Um, and and I, you know, I've read a lot. You know, there's, you know, it's economic. There's a lot of different things that go into that. But what, what do you see and how does the church do that? Um, I don't think books can really, really describe, you know, it's it really what most of the healing is about. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to the black community, I can't speak for all black people. I know a few, but I can't speak for all of them. Um, but when it comes to healing in the black community, um, just like any other community, it starts with self. I mean, we, we all have our issues. And just like in the, in the white community, um, there are issues in the black community. A lot of that stuff has to be dealt with. It's inner stuff. It's stuff we've grown up with, things we had to go without, things that, that we've dealing with, these kind of issues. And it just starts with self. Um, and that's with all of us. We have to start when it comes to healing. We have to start with us and our issues and what's going on. Because um, like you were saying, a lot of the perception that he had for, uh, of police officers, he realized that he was wrong. And I think a lot of the things that we grow with, we get kind of programmed and we think to ourselves, things are just a certain way and, and things are just going to be a certain way. But we come to find out later on, like the 62-year-old man, we're wrong. And we just have to really sit back and analyze our issues and we have to deal with our issues. You can't run from them. This is dealing with our issues. You know, are we all gonna agree with everything that's said here? No, we're not. But there's still some good in the art of uh, agreeing to disagree. It still means something. But everything starts with self. You know, whether it be dad's gone, mom's gone, drug issues, blah, 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 blah. A lot of stuff that we have as adults started when we were children. A lot of stuff that we as adults are dealing with is childhood issues and stuff. So we have to deal with self. And as far as dealing with, you know, approaching people about race and issues, when you go in, don't go in with an agenda of, hey, this is what I think. Go in with, a, with an idea of help me understand. Make it personal. I want to understand. I don't want to walk around ignorant. I want to understand. Help me understand because I think that's the biggest issue where I know in the black community is, you know, the white community, you just don't understand and you don't understand because you, you're scared to sit down and have a conversation. A lot is because of what's projected forward makes you a little hesitant and that spirit of fear. But like she said, it, it's just, you have, Tony said, you have to have the conversations. You have to have Amen. it. Yes. No, Amen. thank you. Amen. Seek first to understand before being understood. Absolutely. Yes. Right. And uh, I read somewhere, I think it was in a Steve Harvey book that says, above all things, guard your heart. Yeah. Right. Was that Steve Harvey? <laughs> <laughs> Solomon. Oh, oh. <laughs> no, it was, I knew it was an S. Different guy. S guy. Yeah. S guy. <laughs> um, no, because it is a heart issue. Yeah. Above all things, ladies and gentlemen, guard your heart. Right. Because it is a heart issue. Yeah. Um, Pastor, if you want to yeah. close hey, this out. Thank you. Thank you all for our... Our great panel who's come here to just share truth with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you guys.